If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Jillian, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 178 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Duoskin. As the smoke begins to clear, you'll be able to see that this conversation is set to classic. My guest today is William B. Davis. That's right, William B. Davis, actor, director, author. You know and love him as Cigarette Smoking Man on The X-Files. If the truth is out there, we're going to find it. My conversation with William B. Davis is coming up in just a few seconds. And in these few seconds, let's shine a light on last week's episode with comedian Wendy Liebman, one of the funniest people of all time. Do not miss that amazing conversation. You'll love it. You know what else you're going to love? My conversation with William B. Davis. We talk all about his book on acting and life, directing, acting, and of course, The X-Files. Enjoy. All right, everyone, I want to introduce you to my next guest, actor, director, author of On Acting and Life, currently can be seen in the Amazon series Upload, but he lives in our hearts or rather haunts our dreams as the cigarette smoky man from the X-Files. If the truth is out there, we're going to find it. Welcome to the show, William Davis. Whoa. (laughs) Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? So much to talk about, but I'm fascinated by your book and everything you've done. But the one thing that kind of caught me off guard, which is the nice thing about kind of when you dive into someone who you're going to meet and kind of like water skiing champ. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I was obsessed. I would, I watched the whole video. What got you in the water skiing and not just water skiing champion slalom. You could do on one ski. I can't even, I can't even get up on two skis. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, I, I water skied, you know, as a kid on the lake in Ontario in Muskoka and thought I was really hot stuff, but I really didn't know anything about it. And then when I went to England to to study for theater and I was working there, I'd been I'd been a real snow skier, but uh, I what, what am I going to do now? There are no mountains, there's no snow. So I found some water ski clubs and it was all much more organized. And there I found out that uh, what a slalom course was and then I had no idea how to run it. <laughs> And what a trick ski was, and I had no idea how to stand up on it, never mind turn it or do anything with it. So in the absence of snow skiing, I started to water ski. And then when I came back to Canada, I connected to uh, water skiing in in Montreal and Quebec with Clint Ward, who was the coach of the national team at the time. And, And just one thing has led to another and opportunities to really really work at the craft of water skiing and, and see what its potential was. It's funny because when, you, when you're like you know, preparing for something like this, it's like that just popped right out. And I'm like, completely <laughs> unexpected. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. And that I'm still skiing, you know. I mean, I'm in my 80s and people are still a little, what, you still water ski? Yeah, still do. Not to the same level that I did even 20 years ago, but yeah, I still ski. 
That's an inspiration. One ski or two skis these days? Uh, well, it's always one ski for slalom. Okay. So it's-, uh, well, it's pretty well one ski for figure skiing, too. We call it trick skiing. I don't jump anymore. And that was on two skis when we used to jump. But, uh, but I still slalom and I still do some trick skiing. So that's all on one ski, yeah. I know nothing about sports. So, okay. I'll... <laughs> so the, okay, right. I should have Googled what's But as you say, there's, there's, a, there's a YouTube, there's a YouTube video of me water skiing. So people can check it out and see what it is I actually did do about 20 years ago. Oh, it's fascinating. It's worth every second. Everyone, I'll put a link. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes for sure. Everyone, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> everyone deserves to see that. <laughs> awesome. Oh, man. Awesome. So, all right, your book on acting and life. And I enjoyed it very much. Kind of broken into two parts. Yeah. Acting and... And basically a biography memoir of my of my life in acting, whether it was as an actor or a director or an acting teacher. But This is your second, at least your second book, right? You had second, musings, yeah. musings of Cigarette Smoking Man. Yeah. Where There's Smoke. Where There's Smoke, Bob, right? Was the, yeah, it was the first one, yeah. The first one, really quite a personal memoir. Uh, the second is a much more professional, dealing with my life as a professional and dealing dealing with, in a sense, a masterclass on acting. I dove into both. Yeah, you know? it, was, it was fun. Good. Yeah, William Davis Center for Actor Studies. What, as an actor, what led you to want to teach and pass on? I've always been a, a teacher. I've always. I remember my grade thirteen teacher saying, "Wow, this." This Bill Davis, he's obviously a teacher that could tell by the way I explain things in class and what. Anyway, anyway, it's always come naturally to me to communicate, I guess. Teaching of acting is is fascinating because it, it connects you with the, the student and what their process is and what's going on in, in that life and connects you with the material that they're trying to work with. So it's always an exploration of human life. Uh, how do we live? What do we do when we live? And how do we give expression to it? And uh, teaching allows me, in a strange way, to do things as a director I can't do. I mean, for instance, I was an assistant director on National Theatre's of Great Britain production of Miss Julie with Maggie Smith. And Maggie Smith was doing a lot of her tricks in those rehearsals. And the director patiently, patiently took time to take those tricks away and bring her to a real truce, which was marvelous. As a teacher, though, I could just say to Maggie, Maggie, you're indicating. Maggie, we have to act in a different way. We have to work differently. But you can't say that as a director. You can't say that to a working actor. They have their way of working. But to a student who wants to learn how to be a better actor, then you can dig deeper. Well, that's part of the fascination. The book leads you into a, a deeper exploration of what the actor does. Do you believe anyone could be a good actor? Like, I don't no. believe I can dance good no matter <laughs> no, how I do not I, I don't believe that. Just watch um, Chris Carter's tiny performance in <laughs> in uh, X Files. He's wooden. He's awkward, and he knows very well this is not his metier. <laughs> no, there are there is such a thing as talent, and there is such a thing as I think as exposure. I think you know exposure at an early age, uh, as in so many activities, you learn to read well, you learn to speak well because of environments that you grew up in, whatever. So there are a lot of chance factors. Then you can teach a lot. You can uh, there's quite a lot of development that can happen by learning the craft. It's the same with so many. I mean, 
you're not a sports fan, so giving you sports images may, may not help. But listeners uh, who, who know hockey may know of Connor McDavid, who is a superstar hockey player. And so many, so many people in the, in the whole country have trained as hard as he has, uh, been exposed to the same things that he has, but can never reach the skill level that he has. And, and I think that applies to acting as well. Sure. I totally get that. Yeah. See, I'm a good actor. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get, I get that. That yeah. makes that makes sense. So, so when you watch somebody who's an amazing actor but gives a bad performance, is that the director? Is that just? Is that kind of a? Sometimes it can be the the words on the page, the the way they were directed. Because you see that, right? The, somebody yeah. who can win yeah. an award, and the next minute you're like, "Hey, get me out of here." Yeah, it can definitely, uh, definitely the director can make can make a difference. Um, I notice it in the theater even more than I notice it in film, where you, you see an actor playing an attitude or playing a quality. You immediately think, ah, the director wants this kind of character. And it said, you're this kind of character. So I'm going to play this kind of character. So I'm an evil man. So I'm going to play evil. And it becomes very general and unspecific. Whereas you have to find, you could be an evil character, but you have to find what makes you be an evil character. You have to find specificity of that behavior. I'm playing an evil character on Upload. I didn't know I was. When it started, I thought I was a nice, friendly neighbor, but it turns out I'm not. No one um, with $50 billion is a nice person. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Wait, so don't play a character. That's one of your three don'ts. See, yes, I read the book. See, I read the book. <laughs> which is part of the uh, the advice that you give which is this was it was i'm ready to be an actor after reading the book i'm ready to just go out there <laughs> yeah go but, for it no but yeah. i did think it was fascinating how it's you like you, you just described it but it the uh, the point of view that can take a a good performance or or ruin a performance if they're if they're trying yeah and and the actor themselves may may have made a, a decision that actually doesn't work i mean they they may have tried to track a a trajectory that is not in full harmony with the text that they have to play, so that they're in conflict with the words they have to speak, or they're trying to make the words they have to speak mean something different than they actually mean. You know, so things like that can happen. For me, one of the things that doesn't work for me, although there are actors who are brilliant at it, is to to have a picture of a real person and try to imitate that person. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I just read somebody talking about descriptions of great actors and actors who have failed when they shouldn't have. And one incident, the Oscar winning Meryl Streep as Margaret Thatcher. And this person said, as I said, when I saw it is, is that this is not Meryl Streep at her best. This is Meryl Streep showing she's a good mimic, but she's not playing a real person. Got it. Is that the Iron Lady? Yeah. Okay. I, I get that. I totally get that. It's, it's a good observation. And you think the director can't tell Meryl <laughs> that I don't know. Or the director could have pushed her in that direction. I, who knows? I mean, that's one of the mysteries of our business, our, industry, our our profession, is you really don't know what the director did. And a director could be seamless, totally, totally unaware of the director, and they can have created something brilliant. I loved uh, in your book, both books, I think you tell the story is, and my kids growing up would have plays in the basement all the time. And we'd go down and their friends would come over and they would do, you know, their made up plays. But you took that to a different level. <laughs> you kind of turned that into a full time career. Yeah, we yeah we actually did. It's not in my book. We actually did that with my cousins. We did exactly what you're saying and, you know, made up our own plays and invited our relatives to see them. But what's described in the book is that my cousins who were a half a generation older 
were actually running a real theater company. I mean, it was a real theater company, that a summer stock company where they paid the actors and whatever. But they rehearsed in our basement before they went north for the summer. So we had actors around us all the time. And, and then when they needed a, uh, I can't remember whether I was 10 or 11 or whatever, but a boy of that age, I was convenient. So boom, they brought me in to play that role that first year. And then after that, I played one role a, a summer for several years with them. I might have got that from Where's Where There's Smoke. Yes, definitely in Where There's Smoke, yeah. yeah. The X-Files is when you like blew up, right? You became like, <laughs> right? Yeah. The interesting thing about Cigarette Smoking Man, that character, is you were in your 50s when this happened, right? Yeah. Which is fair to say later than most actors find that wind, right? So, but this, yeah. is, but this is great. So you, you're an inspiration on all levels, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Sorry to interrupt. We got to take a quick break. I also want to thank all of you for your support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations. And that's how we keep the lights on. And now back to my amazing conversation with William Davis. We're about to dive into his path to the X-Files. And we're back. But I mean, you had done you had done a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. Dead Zone, Cutting Room Floor, first thing. We won't yeah. that. SCTV, I saw that as a credit. You did yeah. a, kind of a voice on that. Airwolf, Look Who's Talking, It, 21 Jump Street, The Commish, MacGyver. So you were all over the place before... Yeah, I mean, I was well, a working kind of contract actor. I mean, I was running my acting school at the time, uh, and I'd had a long career as a theater director, both in England and in Quebec and in Toronto and then eventually in Vancouver. For 20 years, I didn't act at all. I, had, I was a director, acting teacher, but I didn't actually put myself out as an actor. It wasn't until I, I was in a moment of transition, I guess, and I got a grant to study acting teachers, because as an acting teacher, I wanted to know more what other acting teachers were doing. I thought a good way to find out was just to take their classes, not just watch them, but actually take them and thought, oh, I can actually do this better than I thought I could. So at that point, I, I thought, well, I'm doing all these other things. But then I got an agent and started going out for things and gradually doing more and more work and getting larger and larger roles until, until I auditioned for this part with no lines called The X-Files. <laughs> when people meet you, do they assume you're this evil conniving person? Because that character is so ingrained. Because here's, here's what I'll say. I'll, you know, Ronnie Cox, he was in Deliverance. But he was also like the bad guy in RoboCop and in Total Recall. Played the nice guy and then he became the bad guy. And so when I was getting ready to talk to him, just like you, it's like you have that evil character in your head, but you're like, yeah, of course, yeah. one of the nicest people ever. And so yeah. I was like, but do people like expect? <laughs> it's variable. I mean, I remember once early on being in, a, in an elevator and somebody just hadn't noticed who they were standing beside and they looked at me and they cowered in fear, said, you look like that man from the X-Files. And I said, well, actually, I am the man from the X-Files. And then they switched all together and went and got the friends to all come and get autographs. But, uh, <laughs> but yes, I think, uh, I think there was some intimidation effect in very quickly, but it very quickly goes away because I very quickly smile and Smoking Man rarely smile. So that helped. Um, it's, yeah, it's curious. But the other thing that I found curious was just the reaction to being, being a star or being at least sort of famous because I've been around actors all my life. And as, as I say, I'd, I'd worked when I was young with Finney and Maggie Smith and uh, some of the greats of uh, the British theater. So I was never 
overly impressed. I was always admiring. But the first time I really noticed it, I was in a in a um, uh, electronic shop, and uh, the the server, the salesperson, was standing beside me and, and figured out who I was. And I think it was even before we did selfies, but but he was shaking. Like he was physically shaking to be standing beside me. I mean, what's that about? <laughs> you know. Because I've seen it often since then, that kind of uh, a vibration that happens when you're in, in the face of somebody who's someone you've seen kind of up there, but not really seen them as a as an actual person. So that's always interesting. I understand that feeling. I've, I've, you know, it's something when you watch somebody on TV and it's such an indelible character, like it, like it connects. And I mean, this is X Files and it's run. You know, it's still hugely popular, but I mean, global phenomenon. So I mean, like, yeah, right? So you're, and like, you're larger, larger than life. I mean, there's a lot of famous people that at the time, I'm sure, on popular shows, but I mean, X Files was, you know, the lexicon, yeah. everything. It was, I mean, it's just part of culture. And it's like, yeah. you know, you're the main bad guy. It was, it, was, it was back in the day, too, before. The audience all got fragmented as it is now. So now, I mean, there's lots of great shows, but they're not watched by the same number of people at the same time. We like we had 20 million people watching it at the same time. That doesn't happen now. No, yeah. Now there's just way too much. Sometimes you can. I, we, my friends and I were talking about a show that Julia Roberts was on, and like none of us had heard of it. I'm like, how was Julia Roberts on a TV show for ten episodes, and none of us even knew it existed? Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. Like, that, there was yeah. just not, there was a time where that just would not have happened. Can you talk to me about like? Yeah, I know you originally for the X Files auditioned for a different part, and but then ended up yeah. with the role that changed your life. So that's right. good. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in, in truth, I still don't know when I did that audition. Um, I should ask Chris sometime if he even remembers. But yes, I read for a different role, but the part that they cast me in had no lines. So maybe they were just wanting to, maybe that was the part they always wanted me for, but just needed to see me do something. Or maybe I was, in fact, auditioning for the senior FBI agent and they gave me this part instead. I don't, I have no idea what their thinking was. But I think I'm, I read... This again might have been where there's smoke, but like, because yeah, I think you went a little deeper into the X Files, but like, they never actually had a book. They never had a full plan. No, exactly. Yeah, they didn't have a plan. You know, it started off with kind of individual episodes about individual things that people believe in uh, that are a bit weird and imagine that they're actually true um, and see where that went. And, and then uh, Jillian got pregnant. So that was awkward. So what are they going to do? with this pregnant Scully, and they, th they thought, well, we'll have her abducted by aliens, uh, and they're implanting something, whatever. I mean, the whole kind of conspiracy, I forgot what we call that, called that whole arc, developed kind of on its own. And my character developed unexpectedly. One of the authors uh, created a great scene for me with Mulder in the second episode, and kind of they did that on their own, not really in conjunction with the, with the so-called showrunner. So this went forward, and uh, everybody liked it, and they liked the character, and so they started to do more and more and more and more. And you talked about how it from season to season, you yeah. kept growing, and by season two, you're co-starring, not featuring. Yeah, right. After acting, I know directing is is probably what's really in your heart and soul. But like, if, if now that you're acting and in this part of the timeline, are you like, oh wow? I mean, because everyone doesn't get that type of role where no, it's true. It was a, it was a good bit of luck. I have to admit. I mean, I'll 
credit myself for taking advantage of the luck when it happened, but lots of people have not been so lucky. I mean, I say that in my book about David and Jillian too. I mean, I mean, they've both gone on to fascinating careers since the X-Files in very different directions, but X-Files was a huge break for those two. They were not the only actors considered those jobs and they got them and off they went. You mentioned you, <laughs> in your first book, you enjoyed watching the evolution of the acting for, of David Duchovny. <laughs> <laughs> is that a nice way to put it? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, mileage is great for an actor. I mean, you know, we all got better. We all did. But because I stood in corners and watched people a lot as as the character, I was kind of more perhaps attuned to, and as an acting teacher to watching how their acting was. But during the X File run, are you st- you're still teaching? Yeah, I was running my I was running the acting school for quite a few years during the the shooting of the X-Files. Eventually, it got too much. Eventually, the whole X-File thing was too much, and I could not run the school. I could still teach there from time to time, but the actual running of it, I had to pass on to others. And then season two, enough with the cigarettes, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, you know, in the first first season, they... They said, you know, we've got these herbal cigarettes, we've got these real cigarettes, which would you like? And I had quit smoking 17 years earlier, so I wasn't really worried about that. And I thought, well, I'm a real actor, so I'll have real cigarettes. Oh, give me the real cigarette. So in that small role, I had a real cigarette. Then uh, they invited me back to do one, another another episode uh, a few months later, and I, real cigarette, another small role. And then I found myself sitting at home, wishing they would call me for that X-Files show again so I could smoke some more. And then I knew, no, no, no more of these real cigarettes. So we switched to the herbal ones after that, which are awful, but they're not addictive. (laughs) No way they're addictive. We all hate them. Everybody hates them. Even everybody, the whole crew hates them. Because it now goes through the whole studio when you're smoking them. So you actually uh, took on, you combated smoking during the height of the, took advantage yeah. of your notoriety with the Canadian Cancer Society. Yeah, no, no, I did some uh, some appearances to discourage people from smoking. Um, it was motivated further by uh, by my older brother actually died of lung cancer and from being oh, a heavy no. smoker. I'm sorry. So, so it wasn't hard for me to get behind that, that cause. And, oh, I'm sorry about that. A long time ago now, but yeah. yeah. So, all right. So, everyone hates you because you're making them smell of herbal cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, David is here. Uh oh. Yeah. Maybe, maybe no bad guys in this episode. Chris Carter. <laughs> no, it's okay. All right. So now it's this was a, a Fox show, right? So it's I can't remember at the time if how big or small Fox was. Not Fox Mulder, Fox TV. No, it was it was definitely the Junior Network. Yeah. People have said actually that had it not been the Junior Network, it would never have survived. They were playing Friday night, and because they were, say, the Junior Network, not so much was expected of a show on a Friday night. It was the fans who got behind it. The whole kind of core fan built up, and it was just the early stages of the internet, and they started connecting with each other through the internet, and the whole fan base developed and got stronger and stronger. And then finally, after, I guess, three, I think it was three years before actually went to Sunday night and actually became big stuff. Yeah, some people think that if they put that show out just like that at the beginning and got that audience, it would have stopped after just a few episodes. But but because it was Fox, it kept going. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, a small cult audience now when people, they would probably be a little more dismissive of it. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. But yeah, but then, yeah, that kind of just catapulted it. So with Jillian's pregnancy, the other side effect of that was you, your character gained a little more prominence as they were during yeah, that time exactly. as well. Yeah. The interesting thing I, I read is that in season three, I read a crisis of consciousness about being on the X-Files that potentially it was anti-science. It, it pushed an anti-science habit of thought. Was that, is that something you still kind of think or was it just at the moment? Um, well, it was a very interesting situation. One of my great idols in science uh, was Richard Dawkins. And his book, The Selfish Gene, kind of really changed how I how I look at life. Uh, and I'd read everything he'd ever written. And I think it was in 96, I can't remember. He gave a, a lecture in which he did more than criticize the X-Files. He thought the X-Files was a dangerous thing to have because it was promoting pseudoscience. As he said, that, you know, with almost every episode, some idea was put forward of something as pseudoscientific, and uh, Mulder supported this pseudoscientific idea, and Scully supported the other, and every time Mulder won, every time the pseudoscience thing won out. And so, therefore, Dawkins concluded that it would encourage people to think of the validity of pseudoscience. And uh, yes, this was a, a somewhat of a crisis of conscience because I was just going really well. Everything was going great. And this my my hero tells me, this is a bad thing. So what do I do? Well, strangely, it was interesting to me that Dawkins, his idea was purely a priori. He had no evidence. And he's a great believer on evidence. He says, I have to have evidence. Well, he had none that it actually made people believe pseudoscience more because the people watching it knew it was a story. They knew it was fiction. It was not a documentary. Right. They knew it was fiction. Right? And as it happens, many people in the skeptical movement were great fans of the show. And I would go to conventions of X-File fans and I would ask them, well, how many of you believe, you know, that we're that there are aliens among us or we've been abducted by aliens? And I would there would be some that did. But the amount that did uh, reflected the same proportion as in the general population from polls that people had done. So, so there was no evidence that these people were more likely to believe in pseudoscience because they watched the show. And I went, ah, I can go on doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness, right? Yeah. Sorry to interrupt this amazing conversation with William Davis. Got to take a quick break. And we're back with my amazing guest, William Davis, about to dive into how his own skepticism was received by the X-File fan base. And we're back. You mentioned uh, skepticism. I found something that said you were challenged by fans because you didn't believe in paranormal or aliens. And so did that cause a riff with the fan base? Only with, uh, you know, elements, because as I say, lots of skeptics were in the fan base as well. But yes, people were surprised, not not understanding how my profession works. They they assumed I'd chosen to be an X-Files because I believed in these things. <laughs> <laughs> so they invited me to go on skywalks and we can, so we're going to see something tonight. Or they would bring me the latest information on Area 51, da 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 assuming I was just anxious to know what was going on. But yeah, no, to me, it was all, it all was all a story. It was all a fiction. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> and then uh, I read your favorite episode was Talitha Kumi. Yeah. Is it because you made a deal get to get cured of your lung cancer? 
Well, yeah, that was, uh, it, it was it was actually an idea that David promoted based on a Dostoevsky book. The kind of debates that I had within that story were fascinating. With the imprisoned alien was kind of a level of intellectual combat that was fascinating. It was also the episode where I flirted with uh, Mulder's mother, and we talked about uh, her husband and how uh, how he wasn't a very good water skier, <laughs> things like that. Did you say that because of your water skiing? Did they work that little detail in? Because- Chris always wanted to get me actually on skis in an episode. And he kept threatening to do that. The other writers talked him out of it, apparently. Probably because they watched Happy Days. <laughs> <laughs> they knew how that turned out for the Fonz. Jump in the ah. shark. Yeah. But, but, but anyway, there's a line in that um, where I say something about he was a good water skier. Not as good as I was, but uh, right. not as good in some other ways, too. <laughs> <laughs> you dog, you. <laughs> yeah. That episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh. By season four, now you're also starring. That's it, These are the credits. This is the evolution, right? So now uh, it's just the character is becoming bigger and bigger. And this is Musings of a Smoky Man. That episode is is now this season where we get your backstory, which is fascinating. You killed JFK. You killed Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe, yeah. Uh, Don't believe anything you see. <laughs> I believe everything I see. <laughs> I, I know you. it was interesting because when, when I was reading some notes that you had on this, how it didn't necessarily keep in line with the current story, the backstory that yeah, had been up right. to that point. And we eventually, we thought of it, the fans maybe not, but we doing it thought of it as, as this is Froeke's idea of the smoking man. This is his idea of his story so that we weren't beholden to that forever and ever. We didn't finally have to have the smoking man actually arrested for having assassinated president or whatever. <laughs> Got it. And then what was, you did not want the Bills to win the Super Bowl. Do we, do we know why that was? <laughs> oh, I'm going to have fun with that this year. The Bills are good this year. <laughs> and I have a friends in uh, Northern New York State who are anxious for me to lift that curse. <laughs> and every time they fail, I say, sorry, I told you. <laughs> you did say, as long um, as you're around, that they're not going to win. <laughs> oh, man. So now we we have movies. You did the movie. Did you like doing the movies? Did you like the standalone movies? They weren't as big a hit, I think, as the the show itself. But no, the first one was better than the second. I thought. Right. Of course, I was in the first one and not in the second, so that may have something to do with it. It was interesting in in a lot of ways because we took so much more time. There was just you know a lot more waiting, a lot more. So it didn't necessarily translate into better opportunities for us. But what was uh, unfortunate for me is that I had a great scene in the movie. I think it can't remember whether it was with Skinner or who it was actually with, but it was a really good scene. And they had to take it out of the movie because when they played it to focus groups who didn't know the series, but were just watching the movie for the first time, they didn't get it. They didn't know what that scene was about. So rather than being faithful to the fans, they were faithful to the new viewer and decided they had to take that scene out. Not only did they have to take it out, they had to bring me in to play scenes that would justify taking it out so i had to actually go and take out my own scene that's brutal <laughs> yes <laughs> yes i know you think it, w- it could work the opposite way though too the argument would be put something in they don't understand 
to get them to go and to watch this. exactly and of course we made that argument but you know, we didn't have much influence <laughs> so how did you feel about dying and coming back so many times <laughs> you have a favorite death so i have a friend jeff raymond and he's he's obsessed he's hardcore all the way back right uh he, he sent me some questions okay <laughs> yeah, but one of them was like diving into like the uh all the almost dying times as i dug into it i realized it was every time you die in the show, they thought the show was going to be over and they were kind of wrapping it up. Yeah. It was written as that was the possibility, like, like end of uh, season seven, they didn't know if there was going to be a season eight. So, and Duchovny was leaving. And so they just wrote it as a potential series finale. And that sort of became the ongoing thing that they did. (laughs) No, it's true. It's true. I mean, yeah, when I was, uh, I guess it was, well, season nine, when I was blown up by a cruise missile, I mean, this great scene of the missile coming at me. And I mean, anybody who's ever survived a cruise missile, direct hit. I know, William Davis. <laughs> <laughs> so, they, I mean, who knew that there would be the reboot, you know? So this was, you know, 12 years later uh, when they did the reboot and they wanted the smoking man. They needed the smoking man. So they had to bring me to life. And they had the makeup they had to put in to show me in the hospital after being hit with the missile was quite brutal. But gradually, gradually, they brought me back to life. So Now they think I'm dead at the end of the, re- the reboot. I was shot and pushed in the water to drown at the end of episode 11. But I told Chris at the time, I'm not dead. That was a hologram. That wasn't me. And he went, Okay, <laughs> so if we ever do episode 13, or whatever it'll be, maybe I can still come to life, but I don't think there'll be any more of it. I enjoy, is it considered a reboot or was it just a, a late season? Because it, it didn't, every, all the originals were back. I enjoyed it a yeah. lot when they brought it all Yeah, back. no, it could just be a late season. You yeah, call it that. that was, that was uh, one of the, the really good ones. So, yeah, you know, if they bring it back, they'll, they have to. They have to, Now they've established a pattern. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So they would have. Well, they would if Jillian would do it, I think. Uh-huh. I mean, I think Chris Carter would like to do it. David would do it. I would do it, but Jillian's doing other stuff. She's too busy winning awards as Margaret Thatcher and the, on The Crown and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. Okay. The other question was <laughs> how much was David acting and how much is he just playing himself, <laughs> David Duchovny? Well, if you read my book, which you have, <laughs> there's not necessarily a difference. What is that? I mean, he's making it his own he's doing i don't know what what you would want to be different it's i mean it's a common thing that people say oh this actor can only play themselves or whereas this actor can play a whole range of things and and um that can be true uh, but you can't judge david on that because the the character was similar to him so playing from himself was true and was natural that works for me yeah <laughs> When you read the script, did you think uh, for musings of a, uh, a, a smoking man, uh, did you did you like go, oh, no one's going to buy me killing JFK or any of those things? It was even more than that, because there were things in that script that were, I can't remember what they were all now, but they were in conflict with what we'd already established. I mean, so something's not true, either what's in this script or what we did last season. So how, how do we justify that? Um, and eventually, as I say, in our minds, we justified it by saying, well, this is Froge's story. Uh, this isn't, uh, this right. isn't a great revelation of the X-File of who Cigarette Smoking Man really is. Apparently, because in that, uh, in their original episode, uh, before Chris, uh, changed it, they actually had me kill Froge. They had me actually shoot 
at the end of that episode and kill him. And that would have been the end of the lone gunman. And this is, it was, I mean, they went on <laughs> to be in far more episodes, to have a whole spin-off series of their own. I mean, all of that would have been shot dead if uh, we played the original script that they submitted to. Well, I'm sure he's happy you did not kill him. Yes. <laughs> so uh, question for you. Upload can't be the answer to this. We'll talk about that in a second. Besides the X-Files, like what, what are the ones that you get recognized for or are some of your favorite things that you've done besides the X-Files on TV or film? Well, Continuum would be one, which was, uh, I don't know how widely it was seen, uh, but it was, uh, you know, a fascinating story and a fascinating role to play. And uh, one of the beauties for us was that it was set in Canada. So I didn't have to try to sound American. I could actually sound Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) So we like that. So Continuum would be high on my list. A much lesser, even lesser known uh, series was the first season of something called Robson Arms, in which I played a crotchety old guy, a little ageist, actually, because he was old. He was in his 70s. He was younger than I am now, but incapable of doing the washing or doing anything. (laughs) This was with Margot Kidder in that. Uh, She was my wife. So that was fun to do. Oh, one last X-Files thing, and then let's talk about Upload, is... uh... Uh, the last piece of trivia for X-Files that I have is you are only one of three actors from the X-Files that was in first episode and the final episode. In the pilot and in the final episode. Yep. David, Jillian, and me. Only three. Yes. Yeah. I was just interviewing Loretta Swit from MASH, and the same trivia for yeah. her was her and right. Alan Alda in episode one and the final. So it's a big deal to be there the whole yeah. time. Yeah, it's for sure. Yeah. So yeah. many seasons and all that kind of stuff. So Upload. Let's talk about Upload. Let's okay. kind of wrap it up on, on Upload. I've been meaning to watch it, so I started watching it because I knew we were going to talk. So I started diving into it. Now I'm hooked. I'm hooked on oh, it. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's uh, such a fun show. Tell us about, I know we talked a little bit about it earlier, but tell us a little bit how you see your character. And I know you're filming season three right now, right? Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. That keeps me going. I love it when there's new seasons already coming. It, it, yeah. It's good yeah. motivation to, yeah. to watch. It's interesting because the way it started, or it seemed to me, it started with, yes, I was a billionaire and powerful man who's uh, bought himself an afterlife and quite a grand one. But I seem to be sort of friendly. You know, uh, Nathan would, uh, was teaching me golf, and I would go duck hunting. And, and uh, But it's gradually coming out that I'm a lot more insidious than that. The satire, of course, is I'm David Choke, who is David Koch, or Koch. I don't know how you pronounce oh, the like Koch. Oh, like brothers. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that's the kind of... Uh, idea that it spins around is that it's dark money carried to an extreme will do anything to stay in power to do and i won't i won't tell you some of the things that you will find out eventually that i'm prepared to do to stay in power well i know you play that role well so i'm confident <laughs> <laughs> uh, for everyone listening who maybe hasn't started it yet it's great i just started it's it's so fun it's a, it's uh it is a comedy i mean i would say it's a comedy and uh you know, certainly part of the comedy profile of uh, of Amazon. It's part of there. It's satire, but it also deals. It's comedy satire, but it also deals with. I mean, dealing with the afterlife. So there's it's it, it's an underrooted kind of deep theme to the to the show that yeah. all this is built around. And the funniest this had me rolling was you were Nathan was teaching you to golf, 
And I think he said like he just spent $20,000 to teach you to golf or something like that. And you were like, I spent more on an endangered parrot sandwich. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm just like, that's when I fell in love with the show right there. I'm like, I don't even understand how someone could have thought of that. <laughs> yeah, that is so funny. So yeah. funny. Oh, man. Oh, so that's cool. And then you're filming season three right now. So that's awesome. William, this has been so fun. I can't. Thank you enough for yeah. hanging out with me. Yeah, my pleasure. Let's pitch your book one more time on okay. acting and life. Get it at williambdavis.com. Great cover, by the way. Great cover. <laughs> it's interesting, too. This uh, this person who seems to be suffering under my direction at this point, uh, we're now doing a, a pinter play, and he's actually directing me, this, this person. <laughs> <laughs> the person on the cover of the book. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. So uh, WilliamBDavis.com has a shop there. You can get autographs. You can get the book. Get it, I'm sure, at Amazon or anywhere. That is found as well. Do you hang out at any of the social medias? Um, we do a bit. Twitter, a little Instagram, a little Facebook. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll put links to everything. So they Great. In the show notes. And uh, awesome. Well, this is super fun. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate you spending this time. And scene. <laughs> All right. How amazing was William B. Davis? So many great stories. Check out his website, williambdavis.com. Definitely check out Upload on Amazon Prime. It's a super fun show. Go dive into the X-Files. Tweet at us, at Jeff DeWaskin Show. Let us know your favorite William B. Davis, Cigarette Smoking Man, Death. We're interested in hearing all about that. Check out William's book on acting and life. It's fascinating. So much William B. Davis you can pull into your life right now. Oh, what a time to be alive. All right. With the interview over, that can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at Hashtag Roundup. Download the free, always free, Hashtag Roundup app at the iTunes App Store or Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at Hashtag Roundup. Tweet along with us, and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Classic Conversations. Fame and fortune await you. All right, this episode's hashtag is Hashtag Rejected X-Files Plots. Of course, chosen because of our amazing X-Files conversation with William B. Davis, the cigarette-smoking man himself. These hashtag rejected X-File plot tweets were put in motion by Friday Fondue, a weekly game on hashtag roundup. Simply create a plot just too crazy even for the X-Files and tweet it with hashtag rejected X-Files plots. Tweet your own. Tag us at Jeff DeWaskin Show. I'll show you some Twitter love. In the meantime, enjoy these hashtag rejected X-Files plots tweets. Scully goes undercover to infiltrate the UK government. Cigarette Smoky Man goes on a health kick and is now known as Nicotine Patch Man. The lone gunmen adopt a big dog and investigate tales of a local amusement park haunting. These are amazing hashtag rejected X-Files plots tweets. But we're not done. They discover Gilligan's Island was a prequel to Lost. Cigarette Smoky Man tries to quit smoking, enlists the help of the lone gunman. Mulder and Scully discover aliens have taken all the missing socks. I knew it. Everyone knows Backstreet's back, all right. But where have they been? It's up to Mulder and Scully to find out. <laughs> Clear why that was a hashtag rejected X-File plots. Smoky Man starts smoking meth and tries to convince Mulder that he's really Florida Man. 
and mobile homes are really alien vessels awaiting the command to destroy Earth. I think they would have actually taken that one. Pumpkin Spice is a delivery system for mind-controlling nanobots. The Smoky Man goes cold turkey thanks to Mulder and Scully. And our final hashtag rejected X-File Plots tweet. Mulder and the Lone Gunmen start their own podcast. I bet it'd be huge. Oh, all right. Those are some amazing hashtag rejected X-File Plots tweets. Tweet your own. These are all retweeted at Jeff Jawaskin. Show him some Twitter love. Well, with the hashtag over and the interview over, that can only mean one thing. That's right. We have come to the end of yet another episode. Episode 178 is coming to a close. I want to thank my special guest, William B. Davis. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word. And we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.